Okay, I already talked fast. I'm going to keep talking fast. We've got a lot, a lot of work to do. Okay, so a few things. One, this lesson, will, what it will not be. It will not be me politicking. I'm not going to get up here and support one candidate or something like that. So if that's what you came from, for and you've got, you know, your candidate's shirt on and these kind of things underneath your other shirt, that's not what we're doing today. Uh, the other thing we're not doing today is we're not going to be able to go over every possible issue from a Christian worldview. Obviously, we don't have time to do a full political theology in here today. Ideally, what I'm going to try to do is simply give you some ways to approach politics in general from a Christian worldview, okay? Everybody has a worldview. Not everybody has a religion, but everybody has a worldview. Everybody believes something about God, even if they think He doesn't exist. Everybody believes something about what happens to you when you die, even if you think you just become worm food. Everybody thinks something about right or wrong, even if you think morality is relative, etc. And so everybody has a worldview. What I'm trying to do in this lesson is simply get you to apply your Christian worldview also to your politics. You don't get to do what a lot of people do, which is let me put my Christianity on the shelf and just think about politics as an American. You never get to do that. You always have to think about politics as an American Christian. So before we get into the good stuff, let me just uh, kind of read an indictment against evangelical Christianity on this issue by a theologian named uh, Eric Gregory. Sustained theological reflection on the nature and purposes of politics is not a hallmark of evangelical thought. This intellectual neglect stands in stark, stark contrast to Christian mission. Despite numerous calls for a distinctive approach to politics, political theology, which involves thinking theologically about our common life together, remains implicit or peripheral in most evangelical scholarship. What he is saying is we have a tendency to think a lot about things like missions and don't do very well in our thinking about politics. If you don't agree with me, just wait till it's election season and look at different Christians' posts on Facebook, Twitter, whatever it is, and see the radical disjunction. If we have the same worldview, we should have a similar politic, but the fact that people are all over the map shows that we don't do well in thinking about having a holistic worldview when it comes to politics. So, we're gonna run through a bunch of things. Are you guys ready with that scary introduction? Okay, let's do it. First, let's look at a few random things the Bible says about Christians in government. Again, we can't go over everything, but a few things. Second Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Jeremiah 29, four through seven. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find welfare. You'll find your welfare. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 21, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps." Ezra 6.10, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Ecclesiastes 10.20, 
Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom, curse the rich. For a bird of the air, let's call it Twitter, that's a modern-day bird of the air, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, and so, or some winged creature tell the matter. Romans 13, 1-7, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this thing, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, we could go on with a bunch of other passages and look at Old Testament Israel and these kind of things. Here's what I want to give you as a quick summary of what the Bible teaches in these different passages, okay? It's the next section here in your notes. First, Christians are to constantly be praying for their country, the lost, and their governmental leaders, okay? You are to pray for your governmental leaders. Notice, it is irrelevant whether or not you like them. When uh, the Bible is telling us to pray for our leaders, they're writing in the time of the Roman emperors who are like impaling Christians on stakes and feeding us to the lions. And guess what they say? Pray for them. Pray for them. Whether or not you agree with their political party, whether or not you like them, you think they're moral, any of that is completely irrelevant to what the Bible is going to say by telling us to constantly be praying for our country, to be praying for the lost, and to be praying for our governmental leaders. And not just imprecatory psalms over our governmental leaders. Not just that God would strike their head against the rock or something like that, but rather for their good. Okay? Number two, Christians may critique. That's part of our job, by the way, as Christians, is to be a prophetic voice to the culture but may not slander, misrepresent, or curse their political leaders. How are we doing on that, by the way, as a culture? Probably not great, okay? Now, this doesn't mean you cannot criticize policy. This does not mean you cannot criticize people. This does not mean that you cannot be a thinking person and debate what is right and what is wrong. That's what we're supposed to do. Elsewhere, the Bible will tell us to test all things and to submit everything to Christ, but what we cannot do is just slander. We cannot just name call. We cannot be immature. If you want to make a case, make a case. But you have to make an argument. You can't just name call like we're on the playground, okay? Number three, if a country is drifting morally, the primary solution is humility and repentance, not politicking. The church is to stop talk about politics. Why? Because the Bible talks about it some. So therefore, we're to talk about it some. Not all, but some, Okay? But the primary way that the church bears witness to a lost and dying world is through the preaching of the gospel, okay? You cannot make America great again unless you make America Protestant again. Let me say it that way, okay? And so what people need is Christ. They need the gospel. That's the primary way that we, uh, uh, that we do that. Number four, you should seek the welfare of wherever you find yourself. Push back what is evil in your city, state, and country. So I'll say it this way. You are to be a blessing wherever you are. You go live in Iran, you go live in North Korea, I don't recommend those two places, not as vacation spots, if you will. Uh, you go live in England, you live here in the United States, wherever you are, God has determined the times and places in which you should live, and your job is to be a blessing where you are. Push back what is evil. Help those in need, get women out of sex trafficking, do these kind of things, be someone who's godly, start Bible studies. Our job is to make you kind of a theological Navy SEAL where we can drop you anywhere in the world, and you are deadly to the enemy. 
You can evangelize, you can teach the Bible, you can grow in holiness, et cetera, et cetera, okay? Number five, listen to this one. Unless the law is asking you to sin, you must submit to it in all cases. And we don't like that. We say an unjust law is no law at all, okay? That's more the founders of the Constitution than it is Paul. The Bible's going to say unless the government's asking you to sin, they ask you to personally do some evil action, you submit to the laws, whether you agree with them or not. I wear my seatbelt not because I think I should have to. I'm an excellent driver. I've never been in a wreck. I've never had a ticket, which means I'll probably get both of those today because of superstition. I'm kidding. We don't believe in superstition, okay? But I have to do it because the government says to do it. Number six, if you have an evil authority over you, that is not a valid reason to revolt. <gasps> if you want to know more about this, we taught a sermon on Romans 13. I would highly recommend that you listen to that uh, eventually. What do you do if there's an evil governing authority? But rather, endure suffering and serve them whether they deserve it or not, okay? Whether they deserve it or not. As, uh, as Martin Luther would say, that if you have an evil ruler, the solution is not revolt but repentance. God determines who's in charge, and so if your country's going bad because you have a bad leader, that's because there's unrepentance. Number seven, accept when they are asking you to sin to rebel against the government. Okay, that includes governors, legislators, police, judges, court orders, the president, whatever it is, is to directly rebel against God's authority. Romans 13 will say standing behind a human authorities, even if those human authorities are doing a bad job, authority in and of itself is from God. And so to rebel against them is in a sense to rebel against God's authority. Number eight, we don't have time to go into this, but the government has the authority to kill wrongdoers. They bear, quote, the sword. I don't know if you know what you do with swords, but you don't give spankings with swords, okay? Uh, swords are a uh, kind of a euphemism for capital punishment, which is allowed before the Mosaic law is given, back with Noah, that if man sheds blood by man, his blood shall be shed. It's given in the Mosaic law, and it's given again in the New Testament. It is the universal heart of God to allow mankind to suppress evil with violent force. Number nine, we are to pay taxes, okay? We are to pay taxes. If you've ever seen a bumper sticker that says taxation is theft, that's not biblical. We are to pay taxes, uh, and if you don't like how much taxes you're paying, then vote differently. But you are to pay, uh, you are to pay taxes. Uh, that is something you're commanded. You are not guilty just because you pay taxes, and then the government uses that for some evil things, okay? Keep that in mind, okay? You, you giving to something that is directly evil is different than giving to the government, which is supposed to be good, and uses some of your money for good things and some of your money gives to Planned Parenthood or whatever it is. And then number 10, we are to honor our leaders. That doesn't mean agree with, that doesn't mean don't speak out against, but we are to honor our leaders. Now, let me give you some helpful starting points from church history. Again, real brief, we don't have time to do a uh, political theology in church history, but let me give you a few points here from church history. Let me give you the Catholic the Lutheran, the Reformed, and the Anabaptist kind of emphases when it comes to the church and politics. Let's start with Augustine. The most influential thinker in Christianity outside of the Bible is St. Augustine. What he would say is this, that the church and the world are like wheat and tares that cannot be separated this side of eternity. So anytime uh, you get weird Christian groups that try to withdraw from society and try to withdraw from politics, Augustine would say that can't happen. The wheat and the tares grow up together. Two cities, the city of God and the city of man, overlap in one world. Let me give you a quote from his The City of God, okay? Two cities, then, have been created by two loves. That is, the earthly city by love of self, extending even to the contempt of God, and the heavenly city by love of God, extending to contempt of self. The one, therefore, glories in itself, the other in the Lord. The one seeks glory from men, the other finds its highest glory in God, the witness of our conscience. So this becomes kind of the standard way of thinking, uh, in both Catholicism and Protestantism, 
that Christians are to be involved in the world. We are involved in politics. We are around lost people. We don't withdraw, but the wheat and the tares grow up together. One is trying to exalt God. One is trying to exalt self, and then God will give judgment in the end, okay? With Martin Luther, you get the emphasis on what is called a two kingdoms theology. Here's Luther's idea, that the Christian exists in two kingdoms. There's an earthly kingdom, the state, and there is Christ's kingdom, the church. The Christian is involved in both. The Christian is both a citizen and has civic duties and a churchman and has ecclesiastical duties. The role of the state is to bear the sword and the role of the church is to make disciples. So here's what Luther would say. You wear two hats. You wear your Christian hat and you wear your American voter and politician hat. You wear both hats. You wear your Christian hat first. It's primary, okay? It's more important, but you have to wear both and you do some things in one role that you don't do in the other. Okay? Meaning, when I baptize, I don't baptize on behalf of Texas or America. I baptize in my role as a Christian. Okay? If I go become an executioner for the state, I don't do that in my role as a Christian. It's not like, here's Pastor Zach, the executioner. No, I do that in my role as a statesman. Okay? And so Luther has a great little tract. It's about 20 pages uh, called, Can Soldiers To Be Saved? And he talks about how Christians can be involved in police and in the military because in that role, they're not doing that in their role as a Christian although they themselves are still Christians. They're doing that in their role as a state. Can a Christian be a hangman? Luther would say yes. Now, what's interesting is uh, if you go to a lot of cities in Europe, they'll have these little houses that are kind of on the outskirts of the city. A lot of times that's where the hangman lived because people knew we need him. Somebody has to kill these bad guys, but I don't want to be his friend. He's weird. He's out there loving to be in a hangman. He can go live out on the outskirts of the city, but there you go. Calvin, <clears throat> what's a different emphasis you get with Calvin? There should be a strong defense of constitutional political order and law, but listen to this, this is unique to Calvin, but lesser magistrates can resist stronger magistrates, meaning this, you're to submit to the government, but what happens when you have several layers of government over you? One can resist the other, which is why Texas should secede, that's a joke, can resist stronger magistrates. The goodness of creation the fact that all work has value and the fact that we should do all things for God's glory led to capitalism. Where does capitalism really start? It starts with Calvin, not because Calvin talks about it a lot, but because the Protestant work ethic, which gave value to regular work. In Roman Catholicism, your work was valuable if you were a priest or a bishop or were praying or doing something spiritual. The reformers broke that down and they said there is no spiritual and not spiritual. Everything is spiritual. God made Adam to work. Jesus didn't come as a philosopher. He came as a carpenter. And so there was this emphasis on your work having value, and that led to capitalism. During the Reformation, the parts of France and Germany that were Protestant were thriving more economically than the ones that remained Catholic. Interesting. For Calvin, the state should be a Christian state. Maybe that blows your mind. Maybe you think, I love freedom of religion. That's the best way to do it, to let everybody just decide what they think is right and do whatever the heck they want to do. Most of world history would say that is insane. Okay? The state should be a Christian state and should be led by a group of men like the church's concept of a plurality of elders. How is the church led? With a group of pastors slash elders, which are several men who are accountable to the people, but one guy doesn't have total control, nor do the people have total control. There are several godly men that uh, guide in unison, and Calvin would say that's how the state should be organized as well. Lastly, so those three things, by the way, with both the Reformed, the Lutheran, and the Catholic view, notice that church and state go together. 
Okay, to some extent, church and state go together. The last view, one that I think is just the worst, uh, says that the church should completely withdraw from the state. That's the Anabaptist view. Anabaptism is not the same thing as being a Baptist. We don't have time to explain that here, but Anabaptists are like Mennonites and brethren groups and these kind of things. What they would say is that the Christian should not participate in politics at all. The Christian belongs only to the church, and that is their state, okay? So the Anabaptists were pacifists. They didn't think that you could uh, use violence in any sense. And because of that, you also couldn't serve in government. You can't say that you can't serve in the army, but at the same time say that you can be the president who is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. You can't say that a Christian can't be a, a police officer, but he can be a mayor who's over the police department. Okay, it doesn't work that way. And so the Anabaptists would say, let's completely withdraw and create a weird countercultural society and not be involved in what's going on in politics at all. So you can tell that is not my, uh, my view. Okay, I know we're going fast. We have to. Let me give you five wrong views about Christians in government and then one right view. You like how I just say some are right and some are wrong? Okay, of course I could be wrong here, but this, is, uh, this comes from Wayne Grudem. I think he's, uh, he wrote a book on politics, Politics According to the Bible. It's about 70 to 80% good, you know? 20%, he's, uh, he's a little too, uh, uh, sounds like you're listening to Rush Limbaugh or something, but uh, on the other parts, he's, uh, he's pretty good. But let me give you five wrong views about Christians in government and then uh, uh, w- the one I think that is correct, and I agree with Grudem here. He says, these are five wrong views. One is that the government should compel religion. That's like Sharia law, where the government makes you follow a particular religion. And in a lot of uh, periods in English history, if you lived in England, it was mandatory that you attend an Anglican church service uh, on Sunday morning, and uh, I would say that that's uh, not the best view for government to compel religion. The other one is that government should exclude religion. This is what you get, for example, in North Korea or in the USSR during the Cold War or whatever it might be. I think that is a wrong view. The government should not keep people from worshiping. You have a God-given right to worship, obviously. Next is that all government is evil and demonic. You hear some people talk about like that, that the government's all bad and evil and demonic, so let's have nothing to do with it. Let's just completely withdraw. Let's just uh, huddle into our little holy huddles and our churches, and that's it. I don't think that's the right view. Another one is do evangelism, not politics, okay? Now, this view rightly emphasizes that the church's primary mission is the gospel and getting people to be disciples, but it ignores what we are called to do. And then lastly, do politics and not evangelism. These are kind of the, uh, and I won't name some of the churches that do this, but it seems like every sermon is really just a political lesson. All they're doing is just pushing politics and, uh, and all that kind of stuff, and they're not actually preaching the gospel. Here's the view that I think is right when it comes to what Christians should do have a significant Christian influence, significant Christian influence. The main role of the church is to preach the gospel and make disciples. That's our main role. However, in countries where Christians have a say in government, Christians should try to enact righteousness where they are able. Let me say it this way. In the Old Testament, if you're a king, does God hold you accountable for what decisions you make as a king? He does, okay? A democracy is where you take a king, even a democratic republic like the US, and you break that king up into a million little pieces And you're responsible, the way you vote, the way you make decisions, the way you try to influence people, for that millionth part of being a king in your society. So the primary thing that we do is we make disciples. We get people to know Jesus. But the secondary thing we do in a place like the U.S., which is unlike what's going on in Jesus' day. Jesus is not a citizen of Rome. He doesn't have a say in those kind of things. We are to be involved to some extent in pushing back what is evil. Let me give you our statement on this from our statement of faith and politics. We believe that civil government is of divine appointment for the interest and good order of human society. 
Magistrates are to be prayed for, conscientiously honored and obeyed, except in the things that uh, oppose to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only Lord of the conscience and the King of the kings of the earth. Though our ultimate hope, look at this next part, is not in governmental policies or politics, Christians have an ethical responsibility to the extent that they are able to promote and practice biblical justice and morality to and within a lost and dying world. So, let me give you a summary of everything I said. Then we're going to talk about the role of the church and the state, separation of church and state, which will be fun. And then we're going to talk about 18 things I want you to know about uh, politics. And uh, after about three hours, we'll take a break. Okay. Summary. Let me give you a summary so far. The role of the church and the role of individual Christians. Okay. The primary role of the church is to make disciples through preaching, teaching, and practicing the sacraments, practicing church ordinances. That's the primary role of the church, corporately. The secondary role of the church is to tell Caesar what he should be doing. The church is to serve as a prophetic voice to the government, okay? You even have this separation of uh, religion and state that go together in ancient Israel. To be a priest, you had to be Levitical, right? And, but to be a king, you had to be of the line of Judah, and they go together. The prophets and the priests are telling the king what he should be doing. Part of what you had to do as a king in Israel was to read from God's law every day of your life, it says, Okay? What is the role of individual Christians? Here's your primary and secondary role. Primary role, to make disciples through personal relationships, and your secondary role, to be involved in helping enact just laws, to be involved in helping enact just laws. Notice the role of the church there, notice the role of the Christian, and notice your primary and secondary role. Don't get those mixed up. Don't make your secondary your primary or your primary your secondary. Now, next, little fun thing. What does separation of church and state really mean in the U.S., okay? Few things here. First of all, the phrase separation of church and state doesn't actually occur in the Constitution. The closest we get to that idea is in the First Amendment where it says this, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Notice what that amendment is actually saying. What that amendment is doing is keeping the government from establishing or favoring one particular church over another. It's keeping the government from starting a state church, right? Like in England, the official state church is the Church of England, and you would give taxes that are your tithe, and it would go to the Church of England or the Lutheran Church in Germany or whatever it is. This amendment has nothing to do with whether or not you can pray in schools and all the things that people debate uh, on this issue about, whether or not you can teach creation in schools, all those kind of things. The amendment has to do with them saying, we cannot just exalt one over the other as the federal government, okay? So it keeps them preventing the Church of America, the the kind of state church, uh, or prohibiting people from practicing uh, their religion. In its original context, this means the U.S. cannot have an official state church like the Church of England, etc. Number four, there is nothing in the Constitution that forbids individuals from mixing faith and uh, and politics or from sharing their faith in a state-related function or location. How do we know this? Let me give you a few facts. The U.S. Congress used to hold Christian worship services at the Capitol building on Sundays. The Supreme Court building was used to house church services on Sundays as well. Twelve of the original 14 states required religious tests for those seeking public office. After the Civil War, the First Congregational Church of Washington used the House of Representatives as its worship building. In 1863, the U.S. Senate requested that Abraham Lincoln designate an official day of national prayer and humility. In 1944, Franklin Roosevelt, as well as many presidents before him, went on the radio and prayed nationally for our troops and our nation. 
And look at this last one. This is interesting. When the First Amendment was implemented in 1791, it was intended to only limit the federal government and not the state government. (gasps) So you can go start the Church of Texas. I'm kidding. Don't do that. Okay? So keep in mind. So it has nothing to do. the, the, The amendment is that the government, originally the federal government, cannot exalt one religion over the others. They cannot just allow one person to have a church. They cannot have a state church, nor can they prevent you from practicing your religion, not that state and church don't have a say and shouldn't be talking to each other. Helpful thing to keep in mind there. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time on what I think is most important. 18 questions Christians need to ask when thinking about politics. Okay, some questions Christians need to ask when thinking about politics. By the way, I realize this is a super controversial subject. You may totally disagree with me. That's totally fine. Let's have a conversation. Our problem in our culture is not that people disagree. It's that they've shut down conversation. They just name call. They ignore you, block you on Twitter, whatever. They don't actually sit down and have a coffee and say, what do you mean by that and why do you hold that? And so uh, let's keep a live rational discussion here, even if you disagree. But I'll give you a few things here. Number one, what is the most biblical form of government? That would be a good question to ask yourself, okay? In the Bible, primarily you have a monarchy, and Jesus is a monarch. Yet, what happens today if you have a monarch who's not Jesus, who uh, ends up being really awful, okay? Most of the reformers would say that you should have an aristocracy. You should have a group of men who are responsible to the people somehow, but there needs to be a plurality. Now, let me say something that might blow your mind, okay? Most of world history has thought that the idea of a democracy is absolutely ridiculous, okay? Why would you allow everyone to do what is right in their own eyes? Would we agree that most people are somewhat politically ignorant? Would we as Christians agree that most people are not Christians, that the road is wide that leads to destruction? Yes. Then why on earth would we want to give the most authority to whoever can just get the most people? Aristotle thought that a democracy was ridiculous because it counts heads instead of weighing arguments. Should someone who has a PhD in economics have the same say as someone who belongs to the KKK? I would say no, okay? I would say the person with a PhD in economics who's not an overt racist should probably have more of a say than this guy, okay? Why should somebody who doesn't own land have an equal say with someone who does own land? The person who owns land has something to lose. And so you have to realize we just assume this. We just assume everyone should have an equal say. We assume that because people are equal in value, which is true, we're equal in value, that therefore we're equal in all respects, and that's not true. And so keep that in mind as you think about political things, okay? By the way, if you love democracy that comes to us from Athens, remember in Athens it was land-owning males who were allowed to vote, and that's what they meant by democracy. They did not mean uh, what we mean today. Number two. That doesn't mean I agree with that, by the way. (laughs) That that wasn't like a push for just landowning males. I'm just trying to get you to question your presuppositions. Okay, all right. Whew, some people looked angry. Okay, number two. Again, I'm also here not giving you my view. I'm just trying to give you some things to think through. Okay, number two. Should citizens of a nation have equality of opportunity or equality of result? Okay? Should they have equality of opportunity or equality of result? What if they don't have the same starting place? Is that really equality of opportunity? These are the kind of things that you have to wrestle through. Typically, though, when people say we want equality, they don't stop and define what they mean by that, right? Do you want equality of result, which is communism? Everybody has the same stuff. Or do you want uh, equality of opportunity? Take all the money in America and divide it up to everyone equally, and in 10 years, will everyone still have the same amount of money? Or will some people use it wisely and invest it and other people squander it? You see, the problem is in the human heart. The problem is not external to us. Now, here's another one a lot of people don't know about. Number three. 
Should the state provide negative rights or positive rights? Should the state provide negative rights? If so, which ones are positive rights? Now, that might be a new, new concept for you, so let me explain it. A negative right is where you have the freedom to do what you want to do and not have people hinder you, not have people infringe upon your rights, okay? It's not where somebody gives you something. It's where you're allowed to go get what you want and you're not allowed to be hindered from doing that. That's negative rights. Positive rights is where somebody actually gives you something. They actually give you something of substance, okay? So notice that you have the freedom of religion. People can't infringe upon that, but the government doesn't give you a church building. You have the right to bear arms, which means the government can't come and take away your guns. It doesn't mean a positive right that they have to give you a gun, okay? A lot of times when people say, give me my rights or I have a right, they don't stop and define what they mean by that, okay? What you have a right to is to pursue your own interest without the government interfering too much in that. You don't have a right for the government to give you a bunch of stuff, whether it's healthcare, education, or whatever. That doesn't mean you can't vote for that or try to implement that. That's a different topic. But just notice that when you start using the language of rights, you have to stop and define, do you mean a negative right? The government keeps people from messing with me? Or does the government owe me something substantial? They're actually giving me something that is positive, okay? Here's another one. Now, this one will be a little spicy, and this one will kind of give away my leanings. <laughs> Number four, is post-fall mankind naturally good or naturally evil, okay? You know our view about this at Parkway. We believe in total depravity. Mankind is not morally neutral. Mankind is not morally good naturally post the fall. Mankind is morally evil. Now, let me tell you why this is important. Your view of how big and powerful you think the government should be will be linked to your view of human nature. If you have a tendency to think that mankind is basically good, you're fine giving people more power and more authority and more rights. If you think that mankind is naturally evil, you'll be less inclined to do that because absolute power corrupts absolutely, and you'll have a tendency to want the government to have less power. Again, your theology comes before your politics, not the other way around. Don't do what most people do. I already hold this political position. Now let me try to go to the Bible and proof text it. That's backwards. You have to start with your theology and then shape your politics around that. Number five, is truth something in the past to be retained or something in the future to be discovered? Now let me give you the traditional definitions of conservative and, or progressive and liberal. Okay, let me give you the truth. So get out of your mind what you think of when I use terms like liberal or conservative or progressive or whatever it might be, okay? These are what the terms originally mean. So if you go back to thinkers like Edmund Burke and the conservative tradition, here's what these ideas mean. A conservative is somebody, traditionally, who thinks that goodness and truth is in the past, and our job is to retain that. So there's a high emphasis on tradition and the way that we've always done it, if you're a conservative. Someone who is liberal or progressive thinks that truth or goodness is in the future and we need to discard the way things have been and move towards this thing in the future. So take marriage for an example. A conservative is going to hold a traditional view of marriage. Truth and goodness and marriage was defined before us, so we go back to that, whereas someone who's more progressive or liberal is going to say, no, marriage can be this other thing. Let's forget what it, how it has been defined and let's look for this new definition in front of us. Now, I'm going to put my cards on the table as a Christian and say, how old is truth and goodness as old as God? So in a sense, all Christians in that sense are conservative. Doesn't mean we can't change things. Doesn't mean that there aren't things that we've inherited in a tradition that are unbiblical. But it does mean that you need to wrestle with that question. Is truth and goodness something in the past that we retain, that we don't change? We try to keep things kind of like they are. Or is truth and goodness something in the future that we need to uh, go forward and change? And you'll find that in some elements that's true. 
not with truth and goodness in and of itself, but we've misdefined sometimes truth and goodness traditionally, and we have to reanalyze the Bible and see if that's really what it says. But anyway, that is a good question to wrestle with. By the way, just for a, uh, a little fun thing, so you know how the, the political parties are said to be on the right and on the left? You know where that comes from? So in parliamentary-style meetings, if you were a conservative, you sat on the right, and if you were a liberal or progressive, you sat on the left. That's where those terms come from. The original color of the left was not blue like it is today. It was red, okay? Socialism and communism and these kind of things, the red is their color, whether it's the USSR or it's communist China. That was their color, and then the color of the conservatives was white. So it wasn't red and blue. It was white and red, and uh, red belonged to the left and uh, white on the right, and so uh, that was originally what that meant. By the way, when I say white there, I have nothing to do with their skin color. This is in Europe, and there's a lot of white people. That's not the idea. Uh, but those were their colors uh, originally. So anyway, that's where that comes from, and that's why communist countries actually use red, which is interesting. Number six, are biblical commands also commanded of non-believers? Are biblical commands also commanded of non-believers? Okay? Let me ask you a few questions. So first of all, let me, t- let me, let me give you a pet peeve. When somebody says we shouldn't legislate morality, Morality is already legislated. We already have all these rules about murdering and stealing and raping and all these kind of things because morality is already legislated. That's not the question. That's not a thing. No one should ever say that. The question is, whose morality should be legislated? Okay? Whose morality should be legislated? Whose immorality should be legislated? Okay? What I would encourage you to do as a Christian is to realize that God's commands are good for everyone whether they realize it or not. Do you agree with that? Are God's commands given to humanity or just to Christians? Is it just Christians who shouldn't commit adultery, or is it all humans that shouldn't commit adultery? Is it just Christians who shouldn't steal, or is it all humans that shouldn't steal? God's commands are for our good, whether we like it or not. Society would work better if adultery was illegal. Society would work better if there was no murder, et cetera, et cetera. So you are going to have to say, we have this weird thing that we think it's wrong to try to say, I know this is truth. I know this is right, but I don't want it to be true for other people, and I just want them to stumble in their sin and be far from God and not experience joy. That's ridiculous. You have to be consistent with your Christian worldview, so just own it. Just own it. Say, I think I'm right, and I think other worldviews are wrong, and therefore I think a biblical morality is right, and other moralities are wrong. Just own it. Be honest about it, because that is the Christian view. You can't have pick-and-choose theonomy. You can't say, I want to impose this part of Christianity, but not this part of Christianity when it comes to morality, okay? Number seven. Jeff, you start sharpening your sword, and then you can come up here at uh, at, uh, 9.50. Seven. Am I giving more weight to political topics the Bible actually addresses opposed to other topics it does not address? Okay, here's why I say that. You as a Christian have a right to disagree with other Christians on tax tariffs. You have a right to disagree with other Christians on tort reform. You have a right to disagree with other Christians on how much you think we should or should not be taxed. All right? You have a right to disagree with other Christians on uh, things related to climate change. The Bible will command us both to steward the resources we've been given, but also that the world is given to mankind for our benefit, and we're more important than the world. And so you have to hold those two things in tension, and you're free to debate and chat with other Christians about those things. When the Bible actually speaks to an issue, though, you have to give that more weight and more power than those other topics. The Bible will speak to humans being humans in the womb. As God knits us together in our mother's womb or he calls a prophet from his mother's womb or John the Baptist rejoices at the, uh, at the greeting from his mother's womb, etc. The Bible will talk about homosexuality. It'll talk about these kind of things. So make sure you're giving the appropriate weight where the Bible gives the appropriate weight. The Bible gives us everything we need to know to address all political issues, even if it's just by implication. 
but make sure you put the weight where the Bible puts the weight, okay? Number eight, am I recognizing that some moral issues are way more important than others, okay? This is where I'm going to be very overtly Christian, okay? When people tell me that abortion is just one issue, this is what I feel like they're saying. I wish we had a leader that was a great military strategist, and I wish we had a leader that would be great for Germany's economic policies, and I wish we had a leader who was really brilliant, but he's got a mysteriously small mustache and he hates the Jews, but that's just one issue, okay? The issue is not how many issues are there. If I offer you 100 pennies and a $100 bill, you don't take the 100 pennies because there are more of them, okay? So you need to understand that some issues are way more important than other issues. As a Christian, I have to say the abortion thing is the biggest issue. The fact that we kill 1.5 million of our own citizens every year is a problem. It is genocide. It's infanticide, and we're doing it every year. Well, Zach, I think race is the biggest problem. Would you like to know that most of those babies are minorities? This is a race issue. Well, I think women's issues are the biggest problem. Most of those babies aborted are female. This is the biggest issue. Yes, there are other important issues, okay, but this is the biggest issue, and those other ones never cause this. Nothing causes a mom to do this because of somebody's elected into office. That's a mistake of the understanding of cause. This is a more important issue than other issues. So what you're going to have to do is this. You're going to have to create a little pyramid of hierarchy of issues. Which goes at the top? Which goes second? Which goes third? Which goes fourth? And you're going to have to vote according to that pyramid, okay? But you're going to have to rate the issues. You're going to have to rate. There will be no perfect candidates. There will be no perfect parties. You're going to have to rate the issues, though, and for you to say which one is most biblical, which one is the most important. Number nine, should I support a candidate based upon their policy or based upon their personal morality? Should I support a candidate based upon policy or based upon their personal morality? Now, let me be clear. I understand that your personal morality does affect your policy, okay? But a lot of candidates are inconsistent. They will have a good political policy, and terrible moral character. What you're to do is to enact righteous policy. You can't control whether or not the king is going to be a good king, you can't, or as far as going to be a moral person. Just like in the Old Testament, as a Jew, you try to push back what's evil, you pray for the king, uh, but you can't make him be a godly person. What you're trying to enact is are righteous laws. You're trying to enact righteous policy. Keep that in mind. We live right now in a culture where people have a tendency to disregard someone's ideas because of personal moral failings. What you have to do is you have to accept good ideas and reject moral failings, okay? So let me say it this way. Jonathan Edwards is a great theologian and he owns slaves. We should keep his good theology and say that he should not have owned slaves. I can turn that the other way, Martin Luther King Jr. Great views when it comes to uh, promoting racial equality in a peaceful way. I accept that but he also was a Syria adulterer and, adulterer and explicitly denied the Trinity. So I have to say that's bad. We have to do that with all of our cultural heroes. There is one person who got it right both in doctrine and morality. Do you know who that is? Yeah, he's this Jew from 2,000 years ago who's the God-man. Everyone else is messed up. So what you have to do is you have to say this is good, but this part over here is bad. You have to do both. Don't reject good thinking because someone's evil, nor accept bad thinking uh, because somebody acts righteously or whatever it might be. The two, you, you have to be able to speak to both issues. Number 10, should decisions that are made benefit the majority of the citizens of a country or not? So if you have two options, one benefits most people, one benefits just a few people, which decision do you make and why? That's a question that you'll have to wrestle through. 
Number 11, I like this next one. Have I conflated the role of the church and of the state? Okay? This happens a lot when Christians use the word we. They'll say something like this. We should care for the poor. And I have to say, I'm so, I'm so sorry. When you say we, do you mean we Christians, we the church, or do you mean we the pagan United States of America? What do you mean by we? We should accept the immigrant. Okay, uh, again, what, what do you mean by You mean we the church? If anybody comes in here, we'll just accept them. Or do you mean we the United States, the secular government? Or we should go kill the terrorist. Okay, again, I'm sorry. You mean like me as a crit, like me and Jeff and Dan go get our ARs and we go over to the Middle East and we kill the terrorist? Have a Parkway, the Parkway Church t-shirts on? Is that what you mean? Or do you mean we the army or something like that? Okay. You have to distinguish what you mean by what is the role of the church and the role of the state. Most of the commands given to Old Testament Israel would be more applied to the church today, the true Israel, than it would be applied to the state. So keep that in mind. Here's another one, number 12. Are all forms of inequality evil? Okay, now let me be very clear on this, what I do and don't mean. We are all equally valuable to God. God does not love a man more than a woman. He does not love one race more than another race, etc. God loves us. We have value. Everybody's life is equal. So when we talk about equality, let me be clear. Any type of inequality that says that you're not a person, that says that you don't have value, is evil and we as Christians should oppose that. Amen? Now, we're equal in personhood, we're equal in value. Yes and amen. Are all other types of inequality evil, though? Okay? Let me say it as strongly as I can. Do you want your garbage man doing brain surgery on you instead of your doctor, or should you have an inequality of education? Okay? You have to realize that we are equality in regards to our value, but we are unequal in a lot of different ways. Some people are stronger than other people. Some people are more prone to sickness than other people. Some people are smarter than other people. There's a whole joke about we know that God is a capitalist because he gives some people 10 talents and some people five, right? That's a joke, okay? God's not going to align with our political structures. But anyway, the idea here, though, is we have a tendency to think any equality is bad, and that's not true. There's some equality that's bad, especially when it demeans somebody's value, but not uh, in every area, okay? Not in every area. Number 13. This one also is spicy. Man, now that I'm reading my notes out loud, I think, ooh, <laughs> yikes. Okay, let's keep going. This is my view. This is who I am. Take it or leave it. Uh, take it or leave it. Number 13, do I recognize the difference between biblical justice and secular social justice? Okay. The most common logical fallacy is what's called an equivocation. It's where you use one word in more than one way, although you're using the same word. Okay. And uh, so there's a big debate right now in evangelicalism, which is simply this, is social justice a gospel issue? Is justice a gospel issue? Okay. The reason that Christians disagree on that question is because the question is not well-defined. The first question you have to ask is, uh, is justice part of the saving content of the gospel, or is it merely an implication of the gospel? I'd say it's an implication of the gospel. It's not the gospel. The gospel is a message about Jesus and the kingdom. Okay. The second question is, and here's a big one, is biblical justice the same thing as secular social justice? And I would say that it's not. If you look at the requirements of justice in the Old Testament, it includes things like capital punishment and women not being priests and not giving deference to the victim or to the, uh, the poor in court or whatever it might be. So biblical justice is not the same thing as secular social justice. Secular social justice says this, mankind can fix our problems without Jesus. That's what it says. How do I know that? Because so many people are on that train that are not Christians. It says if we can just legislate and we can educate, we can deal with the problems of mankind and there will be justice. That doesn't work. 
There is no such thing as pure secular social justice that works. There's biblical justice, where we as Christians realize that we are called to enact righteousness, okay? Where there has been bad things in the past, there needs to be repentance, there needs to be uh, reconciliation. Where there have been evil decisions made, we need to call those decisions evil. But our job is to say, Jesus is Lord, He's first, and as an outplay of that in our lives, we help enact righteousness, we help love people, we care for the poor, we encourage, but that's only done because it's linked to the gospel. It's not done without Jesus, okay? Number 14, should everyone have an equal voice in all governmental matters? Should everyone have an equal voice in all governmental matters? This is really the curse of modern social media. Uh, modern social media is kind of the reversal of Babel, right? So God, people try to exalt themselves and rebel against God, so he scatters them and it confuses their language. Well, what social media does is it reverses that and you see more towers of Babel built. You see more stupid come up uh, because it gives people a voice who should not have a voice. Uh, and so there you go. Number 15. <laughs> Am I swinging the pendulum too far the other way in light of past wrongs, okay? Where are your politics reactive? Where instead of looking at the issue in and of itself, you're swinging the pendulum because of some past event or issue, okay? Number 16, what obligations does a person who gets the benefits of a society have to that society? Now, that's interesting, okay? I would challenge to say that if you are getting benefits from a society, that you also have some obligation to that society, okay? Uh, John Locke, the great uh, political theorist and philosopher held this, that when you mix your labor with the land, that's what determines private property, and that if you're gonna take the benefits of society, being protected, taxation, laws, roads, etc., you're implicitly agreeing to follow those rules. So here, here's what I mean. If somebody says, well, I'm gonna rebel against the law because I don't like the laws here in America. I would say, okay, while you're doing that, are you using roads, our roads? Are you defended by our military? Are you defended by our police? Are you partaking in our jobs, whatever it is? Okay, then you have agreed to follow those laws whether you want to or not, okay? It's, it's like Braveheart. Never once did I swear my allegiance to the king. It matters not, he is your king. That's the kind of idea. If you're gonna benefit from society, you have implicitly made a contract with the government. You have agreed to abide by the government's laws by the fact that you're taking its stuff, okay? So you don't have to sign a piece of paper that says I will follow the law. By you taking the benefits, you've implicitly agreed to follow the law, okay? Two more. How far should someone's personal freedoms infringe on the freedoms of other people? How far should somebody's personal freedoms infringe on the freedoms of other people? By the way, this is a big issue right now with the transgenderism debate. It's not, can we all be nice to people regardless of how they identify? Sure, we can all be nice to all kinds of people. That's not the issue. If I want to believe that somebody is one gender and they want to believe they are another gender, I should not have to change my thinking at all. I have, their, their rights do not infringe upon my rights. I get a right to think of them however the heck I want, and they have a right to think of themselves how they want, legally, not biblically, but legally. And so that is the, uh, the difference there. How far should someone's personal freedoms infringe on the freedoms of other people? Have you ever heard that you have the right to do whatever you want within an American system as long as it doesn't infringe on the rights of other people? Okay, that doesn't come from like the Bible. That comes from John Stuart Mill, the utilitarian, okay? Uh, and so uh, anyway, so it's not a, uh, that's not actually a biblical idea, but there you go. Number 18, and then Jeff can come up for a little Q&A. Within a two-party political system, is one party's policies closer to a biblical worldview than the other party? Neither are perfect, but is one closer than the other party? Do you, 
uh, vote based upon that, et cetera. So those are some questions to wrestle through. I've given you some of my leanings on some of them, but on other ones, I just want you to wrestle through those questions. The next time, it's election season, which is coming up. The next time, there's some social issues, some Supreme Court justice decision, whatever it might be, pull out this list and think through these different issues and see uh, if it helps affect your, uh, your thinking. So, Jeffrey, you want to come up with a few spicy questions and we'll do our Q&A. Q&A time. By the way, as a helpful clarifier, these are the positions of Zachary and do not necessarily reflect the positions of the Parkway Church Incorporated, da, 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 okay? So this is not, these are trying to give you general ideas. Uh, there might even be other elders that would hold slightly different nuances on some of these. So please know that this isn't like Parkway's official. Here's Parkway's official position. Love Jesus, obey the government, unless they tell you to sin. That's pretty much it. The rest of this uh, I think is right, but I could be wrong, so. Um, we won't get to all the questions. So if you wrote a question that we don't get to, as always, Send, a, uh, send an email, um, and uh, we'd love to grab coffee or something like that. First question, is it, uh, or, sorry, if it's sinful to revolt against evil leaders, does that mean that all revolutions are inherently sinful and that Christians should never participate? You want to take that one? Sure. Uh, I had to deal with this in the, the Romans 13 sermon. I'll, I'll give you my short view on this. The Bible never gives you grounds for revolution, period. Okay, also, let me say it that way. That doesn't mean there are not grounds. It just never says that explicitly. Every time in the Bible, it's going to tell you not to rebel. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean that there might not be grounds to sometimes rebel. The texts that talk about us submitting to the government are talking about what's normal. They're giving us what's the standard. Okay? Let me tell, so there might be times where a Christian can rebel against the government. Okay? Now, why is there no verse that says that explicitly? Because if that verse was in the Bible, all of Western history would just be continual revolution and warfare. If God said you can rebel at this time, we would all say, that's happened, and we'd load our guns and we'd get ready to go, okay? And so I think what happens, it's the same reason that the Bible never actually says where babies go when they die. My view is that God saves them because God is merciful, not because they're innocent, but because God is gracious. The Bible doesn't say that explicitly. Why? Because if it did, think about how many psychos would go around killing babies thinking they were doing God's work because the babies would go to heaven. I think God is smart enough in his word not to give us certain things that we will take in weird extremes. Okay, so uh, the reason I think that babies, that God saves babies is just based on God's character. It's something I pieced together from doing whole Bible theology. Same way with revolution. If there is a time to revolt, I get that from doing whole Bible theology, not just from those individual verses, because those individual verses are written for what's normal. It's trying to say the heart of the Christian should not be ready to revolt. The heart of the Christian should not be come and take it. It should be here, have it, right? And so I think that's the, uh, that's the focus, but... Um, if abortion is the biggest issue, what is the solution? Creating laws to forbid it or finding and addressing the deeper issues causing it? I'll give a few quick thoughts. So um, the guys make fun of me because I say uh, a lot of times that things are not either or, they're both and. And I think that's the case here, that, uh, that what you need to do is you need to work towards enacting these laws. And then also you need to work towards the, the deeper uh, fundamental sort of uh, worldview issues that l would lead to an abortion uh, culture. And, uh, and so what we don't want to do is we don't want to say uh, there are no deeper issues behind it. You just make it illegal and that's it. Uh, but you also don't want to say until we can transform the society to understand the, uh, the moral negatives of this, then therefore we're just going to continue to allow it uh, to for you know, a million and a half babies a year to be, uh, to be killed. And so what you're going to have to do, it's kind of like with a, a kid. Let's say your, uh, your kid has a problem hitting other kids. 
You don't say, I'm going to spend this six-month period trying to convince them that hitting other kids isn't appropriate, and during that time, I'm going to let them hit whoever they want. You say, no, I'm going to stop them from, hit, uh, from hitting, or I'm going to stop them from that immediate uh, source of violence, and then I'm going to work on dealing with their heart. I'm going to graciously have conversations with them about loving their neighbors and loving their enemies and all of those sorts of things. And so uh, I think it's similar with the, uh, the abortion issue. Yes, there are these underlying issues with uh, the family and personal choice and autonomy and all these kinds of things that are unbiblical sort of ideals that we hold here in, uh, in, in America uh, today. Uh, but I think that the solution involves enacting the laws that are moral and then teaching the society uh, to benefit from that same morality. More thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, so if, if I ask the question this way, there's a lot of rape and sexual assault in America. Should we make rape illegal or should we just deal with the heart behind it? You would say that question is insane. You would do both. You deal with the heart behind it through preaching the gospel and you keep people from being assaulted in the meantime through laws. Why would you ever separate those two? But Zach, if there's laws against it, people are still going to have rapes. They'll just do it in a less safe way. That's the kind of argument that people use for abortion. It's insane. And so the answer is you do both. Remember that little chart I gave you? Your primary role is to make disciples. That deals with the heart. Your secondary role as a Christian in a society that has given you a say, it's not like that in all countries, is to try to enact righteousness. So do both in that order. I will get up and I will preach the gospel and I will tell people to repent. And that's ultimately what they need. They cannot change uh, their wicked hearts apart from Christ. But then when I go to the polls, I will also try to restrain evil to the best of my ability through my vote. And you have to do both. Uh, someone wanted to get our thoughts on uh, Bonhoeffer. So let me give you, I'll, I'll give a, a brief sort of summary of who Bonhoeffer was, and then you could give thoughts on uh, his situation. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a uh, 1930s uh, German pastor and, uh, and originally kind of had these pacifistic views towards uh, not being able to revolt against uh, uh, Hitler as he's rising. And, uh, and eventually, though, found himself wrapped up in this conspiracy to execute uh, Hitler, uh, even though he still was not theologically convinced that he could do that. And, uh, and so he kind of went against his own conscience and said, uh, I'm willing to be wrong on this particular issue. I'm going to participate in this plot to uh, kill Hitler. And, uh, and uh, he was eventually caught and executed for that. So what are your thoughts on, in that particular case, uh, would revolt be appropriate? Was Bonhoeffer correct in saying, I shouldn't do this, or was he correct in doing it anyway? <laughs> He's definitely not correct in being inconsistent. Uh, he, can't, uh, he can't do both. So the question is, if you live in Germany, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and you're a Lutheran pastor, can you try to execute Hitler? Uh, and let me tell you why this question is so difficult. And it's not an easy question. By the way, Bonhoeffer thought he was wrong. So if I just say he's wrong, I agree with Bonhoeffer, okay? Uh, what's so tricky about this is, again, this is one of the... It's, I hold the same view on this that I do of revolution, okay? Every passage that tells us to submit to the government just tells us to submit. This is why guys like Martin Luther would say, yes, you just submit. You don't get to go kill Hitler. You can join another country and then as a soldier there go kill Hitler because that's not your leader. But you don't get to resist against your government. But at the same time, I also realize that when the Bible gives us commands, it always gives us commands within a context. So let me explain it this way. Jesus says that if somebody comes to you and asks for money, you give it to them, right? Does that mean if somebody comes up and says, give me money, I'm going to use it for drugs, you give it to them? No, but Jesus said to do it. No, Jesus said to do it in a context. The context is always assumed, okay? When the Bible gives us these contexts about not rebelling against the government, it's assuming a particular context, and so the question is, are there things that would fall outside of that context? And my answer is, maybe. I don't know. 
I don't have, I've changed my mind on this issue so many times. I was a pacifist, and then I was a hardcore just war theorist, and now I teach concealed handgun classes. So I'm somewhere, somewhere along the spectrum. And so, uh, and so yeah, I don't, I don't have a good answer to that. I think that Paul would probably say Bonhoeffer should not rebel against the government. The reason Germany got a bad leader was because of their evil and their unrepentance, and they should have repented. And if the beast cuts off your head, great, you'll be resurrected. But I also understand that there might be times for the sake of righteousness to help protect lives and guide people where you do take up arms and rebel against the government. I would just need to know all the details in so many specific instances, and it's hard with this case where you wouldn't have actually overthrown the Nazi regime. You would have just killed one guy, whether or not that is sufficient. So, yeah. uh, Thoughts on civil disobedience, especially in uh, cases like segregation, Jim Crow laws, those kinds of things. How would we know if civil disobedience in that case would be allowed or if that's a form of uh, sinful revolution? and then whether or not in those cases like the government is ask, actually asking us to sin? Great question. So I'll, I'll use the case of Martin Luther King Jr. on this. So in several places in the South, he, were doing, he was doing things that was against state law and local laws in rebelling and doing civil disobedience. However, he was following what the Constitution allowed. So his situation kind of falls under Calvin's view that there can be a greater magistrate and a lesser magistrate, and they can disagree and then it's a little, it muddies the waters a little bit. It's more of a gray area. So what Martin Luther King Jr. would say is he'd say, I'm not breaking the laws. I'm following the Constitution. The federal government has said this is okay. It's these states that are actually breaking the law, not me. And so a lot of what happens with civil disobedience, you have to ask, under whose authority are you when something like that's going on? Is it the case that this minor authority, like the state of Alabama, is usurping the federal government or what's going on there. So I think I can't just give a case to say, what do you think of civil disobedience? I will say the government does allow you to assemble, to protest peaceably, okay? That is a right that you have. Also, a lot of it depends on what your position is, and the other depends on whether or not these different governing authorities disagree. And so for me, it would all depend on those individual cases. Those different tumblers in the lock would have to line up, and then I could say there might be a time for civil disobedience. Uh, I think we have time for one more. Again, there were some more, so uh, send us an email. We'd love to, to chat. Uh, can you comment on the state's claim to neutrality toward uh, Christianity? This is a, uh, there's, I guess there's two ways that, that it can be taken, and uh, whoever sent it in didn't specify. Uh, so I think it can be taken as, can you comment on the state's claim as to whether or not it truly is uh, neutral towards Christianity? Uh, or you could take it as whether it should be neutral towards Christianity. You want to take one and or both of those? I think that, uh, so I, I'm closer to the reformers on this. I actually don't know the complete freedom of religion. And then you get the ability to make up religions. So you have to realize when they're, they're writing about a freedom of religion, it basically is what kind of Protestant or Catholic are you? That was basically what freedom of religion was. And so I, do I think that America should be more Christianized? That's my personal view. Do I think that the Constitution mandates that? I don't. A lot of the signers of the Constitution are Christians, but a lot are not. A lot are deists or Unitarians or all kinds of other things. And so I think what that clause is meant to do is simply to say, we as the federal government are not going to promote or suppress what you want to do when it comes to religion as long as you're not breaking other laws. And so I think the Constitution is promoting a freedom of religion. That's different than should they. I would have had certain other things built into the Constitution, but they didn't ask me and I didn't exist. And so that would be my personal view. But That's great. We got to go. Okay. You want to pray for us? Yep. Okay.
Father, thank you for um, your grace to us. Thank you for um, the gift that is your word and an opportunity for us to study it and, uh, and just want to confess that it is authoritative and, uh, and it's also sufficient. So uh, on all of these issues that uh, come up in politics, Lord, your word has spoken to it, uh, if not explicitly, then at least by uh, implication. And so I pray that you would help us to uh, think of you rightly and think of our responsibility as, uh, as Christians and as citizens uh, rightly, Lord, that, uh, that we might be uh, responsible and, uh, and that we might be uh, just and wise and, uh, and gracious and kind and loving and uh, all of those virtues that you have called us to in light of the kingdom. And, uh, and so help us as we go forth from here that you would give us... Um, eyes to see and ears to hear as we consider uh, the glory of your word this morning. We pray these things because you're a good father who gives good gifts. So we pray in Christ's name. Amen.